0: I'm someone who, if I don't write it down, I'll forget it. And I did that already today. Uh, I was supposed to bring Jessica Pertit in here to pray. and She might be watching on the TV. You can stay in there. Uh, but I'm going to bring her up next week to pray. But Jessica Pertit is our new director of children's ministry. So if y'all give her a round of applause so she can hear it down the hall. Uh, we're thrilled. And uh, Jessica is really helping us organize children's ministry and to, to help that children and youth ministries committee. And uh, we, we really are excited. Uh, so please make sure you go tell her congratulations and, uh, and let her know how you can help out. With that in mind, let's open up our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3 will be in verses 1 through 3 this morning. This is the heart of this letter that Paul is writing. And to remind you that this letter, 2 Corinthians, uh, which interestingly is actually the fourth letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but two other ones have been lost. So this one, 2 Corinthians, Paul is explaining to us what true gospel ministry is. How it's supposed to be done, no matter what age, no matter what people, that here's the heart of it. And this is the heart of this particular letter. As we go through these next several weeks, you're actually going to hear a lot of these verses that you've probably heard before. This is a, a loaded portion of Scripture. So 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? but on tablets of human hearts. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, in this room are believers and they're unbelievers. There's ignorant and they're arrogant. They're self righteous and they're self despising. There are young Christians and old Christians. Father, you know who we are and what we need. And your word, this word in particular this morning, can and will speak to us no matter what season of life we're in. You've provided this means of grace, the preaching of your words, that you might transform our souls. And that is what we're boldly asking you to do. So be with us now. And through this process, make us less like our sinful selves and more like Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen. We all have certain people in our lives whose approval, or we could say whose endorsement, we really covet. Whether it's in the realm of academics or ministry or sports or literature or whatever it might be, we we long to have certain people's approval. One of the ways in which I know uh, certain books that are worth reading is actually by those endorsements. On the, if you went into my office, and um, maybe I've used this illustration with you before, but if you go into my office, you would see a lot of books, and you would see on the back of those books, you would see a lot of people talking about if the book is good, and how I've learned what some really good books are, as opposed to just some average books, is based on the endorsement. And so whenever I see names of men and women who I trust, and whenever they not only just endorse the book, but what they say about the book, it makes me say, I probably need to get that book and read it. Endorsements are for the purpose of giving credibility and promoting trust. And that's the issue that Paul is dealing with here with the Corinthians. The question is really this. What type of ministry does God endorse? What type of ministry does God approve of? What type of ministry does God recommend? That's the ultimate question. There's a struggle here with Paul and his relationship with some people in Corinth, that's not everyone, but there are some people who, they say Paul doesn't have the right credentials. He doesn't have the right resume. He's this small, not very good-looking guy who suffers a lot. Literally, they will talk about that. We'll get there. How can you trust that type of a ministry? Isn't ministry supposed to be glorious? We often can wonder the same things today, can't we? What churches are doing it right? What churches are they actually have the endorsement of God that they have the right credentials? Someone who is really representing God the way he's supposed to be represented. Which ministries are actually truly being blessed? Because it's one thing to gather people, but it's a whole other thing to be blessed by God. And really, a big question is this where can we truly go to experience God and his covenant? blessings don't we long for that that's what Paul's getting at here what is God endorsed ministry to actually help us understand this we actually need to do some foundational work here because in this context Paul is talking with people who understood what's called covenant theology and based on their understanding of covenant theology Paul is trying to say if you understand covenant theology, then you would see that the ministry that I'm doing, that's the God-endorsed ministry. So actually, what we need to do is just do a little bit of a, uh, a kind of a covenant theology 101. on one I'll make this. I'll make this simple. First off, what is a covenant? I love how one person puts it. A covenant is a conditional promise between God and humanity. And here's what happens in that conditional promise. God promises blessings if the conditions of the covenant are kept. But he also, he threatens curses if the conditions of the covenant are broken. So it's a relationship. And in that relationship, God promises to do do certain things. And if we keep the conditions, he will bless us. But if we don't, he'll curse us. To give an example, it's kind of like, and this is familiar in Stillwater, but it's the idea of a landlord and a tenant. A landlord says, here are the conditions. You pay rent on time and you be a good neighbor, and what I'll do is I'll fix up the house and do whatever else you need. But if you don't pay rent on time, or if you act in such a way where you aren't a good neighbor, then you'll have to leave the house. That's a type of a covenant contract relationship. And this, this covenant relationship, this is the way God has dealt with his people. Everybody, from the youngest of us to the oldest of us. Whether you were born at the beginning of time or whether you are born at the end of history, every single person has been born into a covenant relationship with God. But there are two types of covenants. There is what's called the covenant of works... The covenant of grace covenant of works covenant of grace it's also a way of looking at it this way there's two types of relationships with God there's a relationship with God where you relate to him based on your works based on how well you do according to his law how obedient you are and that's how you'll relate to God that's how God will relate to you but there's also the covenant of grace or the relationship of grace Where now, instead of it being based on my works, it's based on Jesus' works. God relates to me and I relate to God based on Jesus' works. Because he was righteous and I was not. So there's works and there's grace. You tracking with me? But here's what's interesting. In the Bible, for the covenant of grace, we will call it, there is the old covenant and the new covenant. The old and the new this is actually why the bible is separated into old testament and new testament that actually that word testament is actually a synonym though distinct it's a synonym of covenant now when i say old i don't mean bad right i know in western world and especially in america we think new is always better That's why we're always pre-ordering the next iPhone, and by the time that iPhone finally comes in, we're pre-ordering the next one. Old does not mean bad. Old means this. Old means it has an expiration date. It only serves for a particular timely purpose. It's waiting for something else to come. The old covenant was not God's final installment. It was not the final relationship that he was going to have with his people, if that makes sense. Think about it this way. It's kind of like if you're, when I was at Tulane, we were, uh, they were working on building a new football stadium. And, and when they announced the plans for this football stadium, they kind of had different phases for the construction. You would have phase one, but the idea was to eventually get to phase two and then phase three. Now, phase one, it didn't mean this, that now that phase one was done, you just scrap all that and then you do phase two. No, phase one has a purpose, but it's not an end in itself. Something else was built on top of it. Phase two was coming. Phase one was for the purpose of getting to phase two. Does that make sense? That's what the old covenant of grace is for. It's not bad, but it's not... Here's key words, not enough. It's looking forward to its final phase. And so the covenant of grace, dealing with God in a grace-based relationship, that was in the Old Testament. God's people in the Old Testament, they would, if they were going to live in a righteous life, they would relate to God by grace. And particularly, here's how they would do it. They would believe that the Messiah to come would be the one who would fulfill the covenant for them. right, y'all tracking with me? You good? Okay. Now, here's why that's important, because some people today will believe that the Old Testament is bad and the New Testament is good, that we really don't need the Old Testament. Even sometimes they can say there's an Old Testament God and then there's a New Testament God. That is what we call heresy. Don't believe that. As I, I think I mentioned this last week, or two weeks ago, you cannot understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. The New Testament is the answer key to the Old Testament. It's all one story. It's all one book about one God saving one people, but it just gets better and better and better. Amen? Come on, Roger. Come on. Now, there's the old covenant and there's the new covenant. The new is the final installment. It's what everything was looking forward to. It's what would really get the job done. It's it's what God's people has always been longing for. So, now that we understand that, let let me explain this. Where did you see, in the Old Testament, in the old covenant, where did you see the covenant of grace? Here we go. There was first, there was a promise in Genesis 3 that after the fall had happened and Adam had had eaten the fruit and had plummeted mankind into depravity, that God had promised that he would bring someone who would reverse the curse. We love to call him the snake crusher. The snake representing Satan. Satan. That someone would come to defeat Satan and sin and death and bless us that was the first promise but then God made a covenant with Noah when God made a covenant with Noah he, he had already he had flooded the earth because there was so much sin but then he makes a covenant with Noah in Genesis 9 and he tells Noah he says I will never flood the earth again rather i will bring down my anger for sin that actually should happen again but i'm going to delay that and i'm going to bring it down on someone else someone else is going to take away the flood of my wrath for sin the sign of that covenant that you still see today is the rainbow let's make sure of this the rainbow is the sign of god's people It is a sign of God's grace. But God also said, if you break this covenant, I will bring my wrath down upon you. But then God made another covenant with Abraham. He told Abraham, I will make you into a great people. And I will give you a great paradise. Talking about the land of Canaan. And then I will give you my great presence. So people, paradise, and presence. And he told Abraham, he said, How are you going to receive this? Just by living by faith. Just by taking me at my word. Not by you being good enough. But you just believing me that I will get the job done. That's awesome. The sign of this was the sign in the, in the Old Testament, it was a sign of circumcision. But here's what would happen if Abraham broke this covenant. If you break this covenant, Abraham, I will, instead of making you my people, I will cut you off from being my people. That's what the sign of circumcision was symbolizing. But then God also made a covenant with Moses. God told Moses, I will make you into a great people, the nation of Israel. I will continue to give you this paradise, the land of Israel where they were. I will also give you my presence, the tabernacle. I will also give you my law so that you may know how you're supposed to live and you will receive this by faith alone and as you believe in me, you will learn to obey me. But if you break this covenant, I'll take away the land and I'll send you into exile, which we know is what happened later in Old Testament history. And then you see this covenant with David. God tells David, I will give you a great king and I will grant you a great kingdom that one of your sons will be the king. He'll bring in the kingdom and his reign will never end and he will defeat all your enemies. All you need to do is just believe me. But if you fail to keep the previous covenants, I will curse you. And I'll kick you out of the kingdom. So in other words, what God has been doing in the Old Testament, he's always been relating to his people in a covenant. Conditional promises with blessings and curses. Here is the problem. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, those covenants with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and with David, in themselves, they were not enough. They were looking forward to someone who could ultimately fulfill them. Hint, hint, Jesus. That, this, is, this is gonna be one of the sermons where you give the Sunday school answer, right? Who fulfills the covenant? Jesus, yes! And here is, in the Old Testament, you'll see in the book of Jeremiah and the book of Ezekiel, there was finally the promise of the new covenant. Listen to this. Matter of fact, when you listen to this, I want you to think that if you are an Israelite after hundreds of years of history of hearing these covenants, how this might have sounded to your ears. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this. I will put my law within them. Isn't that interesting? That's different than uh, the Ten Commandments. God had them written on tablets of stone, but now those tablets of stone are, they're in them. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Amen? It's the new covenant. It's also prophesied in Ezekiel 11, 19 to 20. And I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will will remove their heart of stone from their flesh. And I will give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in in my statutes, and keep my rules, and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I say, yes and amen, please. You know, you take a sample at Costco, and you say, yes, I want the full thing. Right? You see, in the New Covenant, these were the promises that God was making. That God would bring people, listen to this, from all ethnicities, Together into unity And in Revelation we see that this number of people that God would save across every single ethnicity that it would be more than anyone could number That God would he would give us a great paradise that would be even better and even more fruitful than the Garden of Eden That God's presence would not merely be with us, but now God's presence would be in us God would grant us a king who would truly defeat our greatest enemies, and he would give us a kingdom that would never end. That's the new covenant. Amen? And this new covenant, it would reach far more people, and it would have far more power. That This new covenant, this final phase, this final installment, this would be the one that would actually transform God's people. This would get the job done. I love what Hebrews says in Hebrews 8, verse 6, talking about the new covenant. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Hebrews 9, 15. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. Since a death that has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What in the world is Hebrews saying? That Jesus Christ has established and fulfilled a new covenant that can never be broken. Are y'all awake? You hearing me? Jesus Christ is establishing a relationship with God that can never be broken. That would actually get the blessings of God that would take away the curses that we deserve. Jesus would do that. Jesus would be the promised one from Genesis 3 where God said he would send someone to crush Satan's head and reverse the curse of God's people. Jesus is the promised one who would drink down the flood of God's wrath for sin so that we might be like Noah and delivered on the ark. Jesus would be the promised one who would live perfectly by faith and he would make us into a great people. He would give us a great place. He would grant us God's great presence. And all of this would happen because he perfectly obeyed God and all we need to do is just believe. Jesus is the promised one who would perfectly obey the Ten Commandments. He is also the true tabernacle, the embodiment of the presence of God. But on the cross, on the cross, he was treated as if he broke every, co- every commandment. On the cross, he was treated as if he was the epitome of sin. He took the covenant curses so that he might give us the blessings. Jesus is also the promised one who would be the true king of God's people. That he would make us, even Gentiles, into true Israel that he would defeat our true enemies that he would transform us to live a kingdom-centered life and the irony of this was that on the cross what was he wearing on his head a crown of thorns ultimately Jesus he is the promised one who grants us new hearts he's the one who enables us to truly know God because what Jesus did my friends here's what he did He not only fulfilled each of the old covenants, but He also grants us the new. He not only took the curse of the old covenants, but He gives us the blessing. My friends, who else is like this? No one's like this. No one else is like this. That Jesus, all by grace, nothing because of our works, All by grace, he grants us a new relationship with God that can never be destroyed. Not even your own sins. Did y'all hear that? Not even your own sins. And I think for some of us, we need to hear that because you're walking in here. And after this morning or after this week, what you're thinking is, I don't deserve to go to church. that That was the last straw. I fell back into that sin again. I yelled at my child again. I looked at something on my phone again. My friends, Jesus has an infinite worth. He cannot be exhausted. Do you think that somehow your finite self could dare to match up to his grace? My friends, all you need is Jesus Christ, amen? That's who you need. That's the relationship that God brings you in. And whenever you feel in your emotions or whatever it might be, when you feel as if God is against you, my friends, you have to remind yourself of the reality of God's Word. That even when God convicts you of your sin, He leads you to Jesus, not away from Jesus. Now, you might be saying, what in the world did we just do for 20 minutes that has anything to do with 2 Corinthians 3? Because here's Paul's point. How do you get this new covenant? Paul says, and actually in verse 3, it says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. That word delivered could also be translated ministered. In other words, how do you get this new covenant ministered to you? How do you get in this relationship? Do you know what Paul's saying here? The only way you're going to get it is by this type of ministry that I'm doing. Did y'all hear that? That is a bold statement. Paul is saying that the ministry that he is doing is endorsed by God. That that's the way to do it no matter what age, no matter what people, no matter what language spoken, that this is the way to do ministry if you are going to enter into the new covenant with God. Paul is saying something actually very fascinating for us here even 2,000 years later in Stillwater. Do you realize what's happening right here, right now? In your seat, right here. God Almighty is imploring you You, not, I wish someone else was here to hear this sermon. You. He is saying, come into this new covenant. Relate to me by grace. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what he's doing right here. And the reason why some of you are believers is because of that type of ministry. It's amazing. That this, as long as it's faithful to the text... This is new covenant ministry. Amen? Paul says, I don't need a letter of recommendation from someone else. You are my letter. Don't you see what's happened? You've been born again. You've been transformed. And yes, you Corinthian people who are still tore up from the floor up. God is still working in you. Doesn't that give us good hope whenever we walk in here and say, I am just a mess and no one else struggles with what I struggle with. My friends, you just need to get to know us a little bit more. Paul is saying, how do you know that my ministry is endorsed by God? Just look at what's happened. See, the issue here in Paul's context was that there were these false teachers who have slipped into their community. And these false teachers carried around these letters of recommendation that other men and women wrote for them. And basically these letters, as one person said, people often wrote letters to their peers or others recommending persons of social status lower than their own. And they would carry those letters around to show that they're endorsed by so-and-so. So So, Roger, I use Roger every time. Uh, Let's mix it up, JR. I love you, Roger, but you know this. You got a covenant relationship here. Jr. JR is higher than me, so what he would do to endorse my ministry in this context, he would write me a letter so that I'd bring it to you, and I would say, see, I am legit. Here's, you know what we do today? We call this the blue verified check on Twitter. Because that's how you know you're somebody, right? What Paul is saying is actually these man-made letters... They can lead people astray. And we can often forget that many of these people can be wolves in sheep's clothing. This is often how false teachers slip into the church today. When we focus on human centered credentials, when we focus more on degrees rather than someone who is truly growing in the understanding of the divine, when we focus. On their resume rather than someone who is righteous. When we focus on the books or the publications that they have rather than in their godliness, we can often be misled. We love to follow the crowds. We love to follow the celebrity pastors. But my friends, many of these celebrity pastors are falling left and right because they're not endorsed by God. They're pursuing their own kingdom. Interestingly, even the history of our own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, in the 1920s through the 1970s, the reason why the denomination went from progressive to liberal and the reason why a new denomination had to start was because the teaching elders, the people with the seminary degrees, they led people astray. But it was the ruling elders who actually knew their Bibles and were faithful. They were the ones who started a new denomination that has actually showed who is really pursuing the Lord. Listen, Paul was considered one of the smartest men in the history of the world. His resume was considered impeccable. Paul himself, and I'll read it here in a second, in Philippians 3, he says that these accolades are nothing if he is not faithful to the gospel of grace. Listen to this. Philippians 3, 4-9. through Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, jesus christ my lord i have a seminary degree i am ordained but my friends do not be impressed by what might sit on the wall if it does not change your heart we understand this in the in our world today because we see people who are very successful in the business world who didn't graduate from college Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Ralph Lauren, Henry Ford, Jack Dorsey, Michael Dell, John Mackey. There's a lot of people like that. But my friends, we must remember this. Faithfulness to the scriptures is the true measure of a leader in a ministry. Not degrees, not publications, not books, not respect in the community faithfulness to the scriptures if I can put it this way and you just had to know that this was gonna come up in a sermon I've already mentioned something with football you had to know that this was also gonna come up in a sermon I was talking with Steve Smalley the other day and he smoked a brisket you had to know this was coming you had to know and I asked him he sent me a picture of it and it looked amazing and I asked him I said how'd it go here's what he said nobody needed the sauce my friends, that's how you know it's good brisket. Now, the sauce is good. We don't hate on the barbecue sauce. The sauce is great. But you know it's good brisket when you don't need sauce. You just let the meat speak for itself. My friends, how do you know when gospel ministry is endorsed by God, whenever you don't have to dress it up, you just let it speak for itself? Isn't it interesting that Jesus surrounded himself with uneducated 12 men who were often fearful and scared and abandoned him? Do you know how, you know, why he used them? Because the Holy Spirit empowered them to be faithful to the scriptures. Faithfulness to the Bible is what is a God-endorsed ministry. Now maybe you might be reading this and you know maybe thinking like paul's like pinocchio i'm a real boy i have a real ministry but no what he's saying is that the proof's right here with you paul's saying i don't need any letters from people you are my letter look at what god's done in your hearts it's not even just it's not me he actually says this the letter is from christ in other words Christ has done this work in your heart. I just delivered it. My friends, all we are, we're just waiters. Jesus is the chef. When it says that this letter was written on our hearts, on their hearts, I love this word. It it means that it was a past event that has ongoing effects. In other words, it's never irrelevant. That whenever, dear believer, whenever you're born again by the Holy Spirit, whenever you become a Christian, that work is always relevant in your life. The Holy Spirit never stops working in your life. Now that's fascinating because in Matthew 15 verse 19 we read this. Jesus says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, False witness and slander, that does not sound good. That's from the heart. Who in the world has the power to change the heart? He does. No one else. My friends, it would be easier to turn the sun into a ball of ice than it would be to change your own heart in one degree. But you know who has, power, you know who has the power to change your heart? Jesus Because remember, he brings the new covenant. I will give you a new heart. Amen? That's what Jesus does, actually, in this gospel ministry. As long as we're faithful to the scriptures, it is new covenant ministry, and it is endorsed by God, and he changes people. Y'all, we live in a very critical age, don't we? Everyone has a comment about something because we can't stand it when anyone receives any encouragement. We find everything and everyone to criticize. But my friends, we need to learn to think highly of the church and notice where God has been at work. I want to let you know, I've seen you be transformed by Jesus. You You can say amen to that. You've been transformed by Jesus. Have you guys not noticed how how much more this church has grown in lingering after the service, we have to start kicking y'all out because you like to talk with each other so much. Have you seen people's desire grow for sitting under preaching and the teaching of the word? By the way, have you seen how many books have been taken off that book table where now we've got to put more on there? Hurting my budget. Have you seen people show up to serve through serve others through meals and moving? Have you seen people volunteer for committees? Have you guys not seen that? Jesus is at work. I've seen some of you as you've been very kind to very vulnerable to open up the depths of your heart. And it has been stunning to see Your transformation people coming out of lifelong addictions people coming out of sins that have ruined various situations people who have struggled with lifelong self-righteousness and what has been stunning stunning is that as I've just watched you sit in gospel ministry you've been transformed is that not amazing The new covenant. So Paul's telling them, you don't don't need to look in the mailbox, as one person says. You just need to look in the mirror. My friends, this is why we say this. This is why we say this is a place where sinners belong. Because there's no other type of person. This is the place where real sinners, as Luther used to say, real sinners with real sin, not just I'm kind of okay. Not like Monty Python where, you know, I'm not dead yet. Yes, you are. Because, my friends, it is here where sinners find good news about Jesus Christ saving them. It's here where we, because it's me too, we sinners, we find forgiveness from Christ. It's here in gospel ministry where we find transformation into Christ's likeness. The church should never be a holy huddle, but rather a place where adulterers and addicts, gossips and greedy, deceitful and drunkards, selfish and slanderers, the lustful and the lying, the murderers and the money launderers, the self-righteous and the self-worshippers. It should be where all these people and more can come here to find new life in Christ. Amen. And that's what he's done. I remember telling my pastor back in Jackson, Mississippi, as I was really struggling with thoughts of my own sinful past, and I remember telling him so naively, oh, young Wilson. I'll say that, I'll say that in five years, so just remind me. I remember telling him, I don't think any ministers in this presbytery have the same type of past that I have. And he said, oh, really? <laughs> Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go interview these, these six people and then come back and talk with me. Let's just say I was humbled. Because, my friends, there is no other types of people that God saves and that God uses than sinners. How does this happen? You see it in verse 3. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. The transformation happens by the Holy Spirit. We're not just sinners who come to Jesus and just say, take me as I am, but I would preferably stay this way. No, he transforms you. His grace is not just powerful to forgive you, it's powerful to transform you. And he does that. He does that, and that's what Paul is saying. Look at what's been happening in this new covenant ministry. You see, the law in and of itself cannot do that job, but the Spirit can help you obey the law. It's not that Paul's saying that the Old Testament people were saved one way and the New Testament people were saved another way. What he's saying is that these old covenants, in the Old Testament, it was looking forward to the great power to come. But they're still saved by the same person. I love to put it this way, that in the Old Testament, people were saved on credit. You'd swipe the card and you'd pay it later. New Testament and beyond are saved by debit. The money's already there. You swipe it, money comes out. It's still the same money. It's still the same savior. And That's what people were looking forward to. That's why it's one book, one people, one salvation. Here's what's crazy. What avenue does this happen in? Because you would think this is this is this is amazing stuff. Does God do like a YouTube series or an IMAX theater? What's the The channel in which he sends this message out he does so through this weird thing called preaching by the way you realize you come to this every single Sunday so once a week for about 40 minutes maybe a little bit longer I'm so sorry you come here and you sit here again and again and again and again and you just hear someone open up the Bible Nothing fancy. Maybe some southern accents. But do you want to know what happens? Miracles. People who used to not like each other are now friends. People who used to think, there's no way I can possibly overcome this sin, are now actually helping others overcome that same sin. Because the gospel of grace proclaimed to you is God's power. Power. And let me tell you, it's even the power for the preacher who's sitting... It's just so weird. Rich's dad came in town one time and we were talking about it. As I preach, I sit under that preaching because it's really God preaching through someone else to all of us. That's why I talk about grace, because I need it. It's so simple. Why is it simple? Because God wants you to come to Him. That's why we use bread and wine you could go into our kitchen and you would see it's probably just box wine. And there's nothing special about it. And then there's bread. It's just bread. People make it, it's great, thank you. But I'm just saying, they're very common. This is not like you gotta go up on this mountain to grab this stuff. Why does God use very common things? Because it's the gospel of grace, not about you getting your act together and going on some spiritual journey to earn it. God is coming to you amen that's a new covenant ministry so what should we do in response just trust it as long as we are faithful to the scriptures no matter what's in your life no matter what sin or what suffering trust that God will get the job done And if you're not a believer The only response you need to have is to believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in him and you will be saved. And anybody can do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these incredible gifts. The gift of hearing you speak to us and the gift that we're about to receive in the elements Father, we thank you for showing your love to us this day, your day, the Lord's day. So would you write these truths on our hearts and would you convince us that you really are at work? And you really are at work in